podcast with Patrick Attaway, and I am going to do a series on my book, Surviving New America, Cutting to the Chase People. I have to promote this book somehow, and I've been trying to do it my best on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, but realistically, I've been promoting it on this podcast for almost a year now, essentially, because I started talking about it while I was writing it last year, back in March and April, and then later on in the year. So here I am, and I'm finally going to be reading and analyzing some of it, and I was on the fence about it. I was wondering if I should cover it at all, because when I was talking about Price of the Trinity, I ended up boring myself. But with this, this is a new book. This is something that I wrote within the past year. And it's very relevant because 2020 hasn't really ended, has it? I mean, 2021 has been full of a lot of terrible surprises. And we're still in this pandemic. And I started writing this right when the pandemic started. I was working from home. And during my lunch breaks and the afternoons, during the weekends, I was writing this book. So... This has been an interesting process for me because this is the quickest I've ever written a novel. And it's original. it was originally two different novels that I put together and edited. So that was all one cohesive unit. And it's fairly long. And I don't know that I'm going to be reading every single page of it. As I don't read every single page of everything I read on this podcast. But this episode is coming out a week actually less than a week before March 5th, which is when Surviving New America comes out. And I've been actively trying to get people interested in it. I've gotten some pre-orders, not an astounding amount of pre-orders, but that never happens with anything I've ever written and put out on Amazon. And I plan on doing a big tweet. I plan on spamming the shit out of Twitter this week. And afterward, because just because the book comes out doesn't mean promotion stops. So this is where we are. This is the state of the podcast, the state of my Twitter feed. This is me right now. This uh, Go fucking pre-order it. Go pre-order Surviving New America if you're listening to this, okay? If you're a fan of the podcast, if you're a fan of me, if you read Demise of the Trinity, you definitely should buy Surviving New America because this is a spiritual sequel to that book. And I wrote this, so you wouldn't really have to read that before you read this, because a lot of people had an issue with the violence in Demise. And the violence in this book is way cut back. I mean, there is violence. I even put a warning in the product description on Amazon, including the language, because there is quite a bit of foul language in this book. And there's even... In this opening chapter that I'm going to read in a moment, the R word, which a lot of people have a problem with. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about the word retarded, which culturally we have apparently come together and said we're not using that word anymore, at least in a public form, because I know a lot of people who still use that damn word. But it offends people, 
And so I don't use it. Not very often, at least. But <laughs> it's in this book, in the first chapter, and the context of it is uh, a bully is saying it to a young boy. The first chapter is from the perspective of a very important character. His name is Sarah. And at the begin- beginning of the book, he is five years old. The book spans most of his lifetime. And book one, he remains very young. And in the book two, he is an adult. So we get the full gamut with Sarah. So should I start reading? Should we start discussing this? Should I give you more context? Well, this takes place in the year 2095. New America is a country that has come together and reformed after years without electricity. The internet is not online anymore. There's no plans to have an internet. There are no radio stations, so there are no radio frequencies buzzing around. But we do have an inventor named Mansur Sean, who is trying to get a teleportation network up and running. And we also have someone who he is competing against, who he wants to work with at the same time, Gentry McCord who is an automobile manufacturer. So we have some industry here in America. Our government is made up of two branches, presidential, and then you have the Supreme Court. And we have 12 justices. There is no Senate. There is no House of Representatives. Why? Because the state governments are abolished. It is considered one big state. So no longer is there a Georgia state capital with its own government. No. That's all gone. And the government does not even have a million dollars in its budget yet. And a big part of what makes this novel interesting to me as the writer is that it's kind of about many things, but one of the things that it is definitely about is this industrial economic race to see who becomes the first new American millionaire. So we still have a little bit of that capitalistic spirit even though we are kind of bordering on a communistic socialist society because health care is free. If you lose your job in New America, you cannot be evicted from your place of residence. There are homeless shelters. They do not allow homeless people to sleep on the street. And... Let's see. What else is there? Everything's pretty cheap. Food is cheap. There's free food for homeless people, of course. So there's a safety net for people. Even though the economy sucks, we're living in old buildings, and there's no real new construction going on. There aren't that many people around. And one thing that is highlighted about the South which was inspired by all the things that was going on last year with the riots and George Floyd, is that Southerners, after 2033, the events of Demise of the Trinity, white Southerners either ran black people out or they murdered black people. 
And we do have a couple of black characters who are integral. Well, one of them is very integral to the movement of the plot. And he is in both books, book one and two. His name is Jim Marin, and he's one of my favorite characters. He's a detective. He's pretty awesome, I think. He's not the the smartest detective in the world, but he does he is very good at deduction. So there we are. Anyway, should I get into reading Sarah's chapter now that you have a ton of context? Do you want some context for Sarah too? Let's just read and find out about Mr. Sarah, shall we? Are you as excited as I am? Oh boy. Chris points at the ants crawling in a line up the tree. His nasal tone and enthusiasm make me feel sorry for him. Bobby says Chris is slow. Jarvis calls him retarded. Mrs. Myers doesn't defend him and pretends she doesn't hear the others pick on Chris. I could be on a swing, but my legs don't pump good. The monkey bars hurt my hands. Since no one wants to play with me either, I join Chris at the far end of the playground to watch him play with bugs. Ants, Chris says. Yeah, I nod. They tickle my finger. Bobby and Jarvis walk over, leaning in into each other's ears. They think I'm stupid like Chris. If Chris realized how much bigger he is than the other kids, Bobby might not throw so many punches. You guys boyfriends, Bobby asks. You gonna kiss, Jarvis asks. Ants, Chris says. They tickle my finger. Please don't, I say. Fear is like when I eat too much macaroni and cheese and go play. One time, I climbed up to the ladder to the tree on my grandmother's swing set and felt the acid bubble up in my throat. Nothing but noodles and sauce on the ground. I don't want to throw up right now. Chris is a retard, Bobby says. Who plays with ants? Shut up, you dummy, Chris says. Jarvis backs away laughing, so Bobby gets in Chris's face and pushes him against the tree. I know some of the ants must be crushed or crawling on the back of Chris's shirt now. Jarvis pulls Bobby back and punches Chris in the shoulder. I'm probably next. Why are you bothering us, I ask. Leave Chris alone. You're bothering me, Bobby says. I try to push his hands away, and he starts to grab me. I end up on my back. He stands over me, biting his bottom lip. My legs are tingling, and I can't say anything. A stinging taste rushes through my throat. Bobby raises both of his hands and grunts, and I shut my eyes so he doesn't knock one out. Then there's a thud. Bobby, Jarvis says, Bobby! I open my eyes to see Bobby laying on his back and Jarvis shaking him. I saw a man have a seizure on TV once, but Bobby's eyes are closed and his body's still. Sitting up, I watched Jarvis try to rouse his friend, and I don't know what happened. Mrs. Myers, Jarvis calls. Our teacher starts making her way across the field. Chris is standing next to the tree with a smile. He's more happy than when the ants crawl on his fingers. When the teacher gets over to us, she's calling Bobby's name and picking him up, but he doesn't wake up. Sarah did it, Jarvis says. He did something to Bobby. But I didn't do anything. And Miss Myers looks over 
at me like the time I spilt paint on the tile. My hands start shaking and I can't move. Her eyes and mouth go wide. Sarah, what did you do to Bobby? He didn't do nothing, Chris says. Jarvis runs over and kicks me as he shouts that I killed Bobby. When he gets close to me, his eyes roll back and he collapses on my lap. I push him off and start crawling backwards. Somebody poisoned them. What if we're all poisoned from lunch? Miss Myers is slapping Jarvis's face to wake him up, but he's gone like Bobby. She grabs my wrist and pulls me off the ground. The joint in my shoulder burns. Her teeth grit as she starts asking me what I did and how I hurt them. She saw what happened with Jarvis, though. He kicked me. Then he fell. What could I have done? Miss Myers lets go of me, and as she starts to fall backwards, I know I am doing something. By now, Chris is laughing. Other kids run over to us. Three people are on the ground as Miss Sanders pushes through everyone to reach us. She covers her mouth as she sees their motionless bodies. Sarah killed them, someone says. Everybody, Miss Sanders says, go back to your classrooms. You too, Chris. Sarah didn't hurt anybody, Chris says. Miss Sanders kneels down to Miss Myers to feel her pulse. Her hand jerks away, and she looks up at me. Reaching for my arm, she starts pulling me alongside her as we head for the building. I'm taking you to the principal's office, Sarah, she says. Her grip loosens, and Miss Sanders falls face first into the grass. By now, the kids are running inside, but I look back to see Chris still standing by the tree. He's clapping for me. Chris walks over to me and holds out his hand with two ants crawling on his skin. Again, he announces their presence and giggles. Mr. Gacy... The principal is walking over to us, and I want to run for the fence and see if I can make it home. Are you boys all right? he asks. We're fine, Chris says. Look at the ants. What's your name? Mr. Gacy asks. Sarah, I say. Chris, Mr. Gacy says, please go to class. Sarah, are you all right? I look down because I don't know how to answer him. He offers his hand to me and I follow him into the building. The air conditioning smells sweet, and I didn't know how much I was sweating until it hit me. He walks me to his office and sits down before, the closing, before closing the door behind him. Since I'm alone in here, I look at the security monitor and notice it's an image of the playground. The bodies aren't directly in frame, but I see their outlines in the distance. Sarah... Gacy says through the door. Your mother is coming to get you. Just stay put for now, okay? Yeah, I say. Okay. I didn't want Bobby to die. When the others followed, I figured they ate the same poisonous food. Miss Myers always brings her lunch, and Bobby's parents are vegetarian. Jarvis and I both had the pizza, yet I'm still alive. Maybe God killed them as punishment for being cruel. Chris didn't deserve to be called a retard, but God's not killing every person who says that word. When my daddy hit mama, God let him go to Portland without us. My heart stops for a second when the door opens and mama looks down at me.
Her face is red and eyes wet. She touches my cheek before crouching down to look into my eyes. For a moment, I only hear her breathing. What happened, she asks. Mr. Tichi says your teacher is gone. Two little boys and another teacher, too. They just fell, I say. They were all ganging up on me. What did you do, Mama asks. Four people, Sarah. You hurt them. Mama's never hit me before, but her hands are clutching my arms and she's shaking. I've never seen her this upset at me. What if she thinks I killed them and she doesn't love me anymore? Mama, I say, I didn't do it. Yes, you did. She's about to say something else and can't find the words. Her mouth wants to keep talking, but she stops holding me and her gaze looks past me. When Mama falls to the floor, she's still looking at something. I start shaking her and say her name. Mama's not moving. Whatever I did, I didn't want to do it to her too. Why is God punishing me? I love Mama. I don't want her to die. She's not breathing. When I put my ear to her chest, I don't hear anything. I hug Mama and can't stop crying. Mr. Gacy is talking to someone in the other room while I'm lying on my last friend in the world. There's a knock. A police officer pokes his head in and looks down at my crying on the floor. How long have I been in here? Hey there, he says. Think you could come out here with me? Who are you? I ask. Officer James, just call me Monk. Monk offers a hand and I get off the floor to follow him into the hallway. A line of ambulances leave the building without their sirens on. Am I just going to kill Monk and go to jail? That your mama in there, he asks. I nod. More tears come out, and if I say anything, I'll probably scream. Is your daddy at work? Do you want me to call him? I shake my head. I never want to see my daddy again. Well, Mr. Sarah, you get to leave school early today. Do you want something to eat? Cheeseburger or fries? I'm thirsty, I say. Okay, we'll get you something to drink. I've got some stuff for you to do at the station, and I'll make sure you're taken care of. Monk walks over to the door and opens it for me. We walk down the steps to his police car, and he lets me sit in front with him. Mama said I'm not supposed to ride up front, but I guess it's okay if a cop lets me. Am I going to jail, I ask. No, Monk says. Why would you think that? I think I killed those people. I killed my mama. Don't say that, Sarah. You didn't even touch them. Look, I'm not afraid of you. I'm your friend. He offers me his hand and I slap it five. We start out on the road and ambulances pass us with their sirens blasting. Monk winks at me. And I feel like he wasn't lying about being my friend. Why do I always start my books with people dying? To be fair, Price of the Trinity didn't start this way, but Demise starts pretty brutally, um, especially if you consider Al Price's chapter, the first chapter, as I do. So, Sarah, it's been established that he has maybe a power, maybe a curse, but 
When people strike fear in him, they die. It's a defense mechanism. And I came up with Sarah as a separate character from this book. I wanted to write a either a short story or a book about this boy who can't help killing people when they strike fear in him. And I wanted it to be kind of like a quasi-horror thing. And so I wrote this chapter, not really thinking it would be part of a book, or a different book at least, and here we are. So we have a whole bunch of different characters that weren't in the previous couple of books. We have some returning characters like Birch. Birch is the series mainstay. So how do you feel about Sarah? He's pretty innocent, isn't he? He has good intentions. He is kind of an outsider. Well, when I wrote this, I was imagining my pre-K playground. And it's still there, but the school itself is closed. And the playground is overrun with weeds and other such things. But uh, there was a tree at the end of this playground. And I did know a boy who liked to play with the ants. That's who Chris is based on. And the gentleman who he is based on grew up to be pretty fucking big. (laughs) Uh, So big that he probably didn't realize he was that big. And if he wanted to, he could have been a... A very good athlete. He could have been on the football team if he wanted to, but for some reason, that never happened. So, Bobby and Jarvis are also based on two different kids that I knew growing up. Uh, Bobby is directly inspired by a friend of mine that I knew in elementary school. So, yeah, I am killing my darlings right and left with this chapter, aren't I? So, how do you think Sarah's going to develop in this book? Well, the next chapter doesn't really go into that. The next chapter is from a new character named Holner's perspective, and she's mentioned in the product description, or slash synopsis, on Amazon. Would you like me to read that now? Oh, absolutely I will. So, one of the things about writing a book is that you want to lead people in and give them surprises. And right now I kind of spoiled that part about Sarah, even though you can deduce it from reading the first chapter that he kills people when they strike fear in him. Holner is a much different character. Um, Yes, their paths do cross. Uh, I will let you, the reader, find out how that happens. I have to make sure that My mouth stays hydrated as I read this shit. He drives an Edison compact from before the power went out in the 30s. I was 12 when Atlanta got power back in 2085, and my dad drove an Edison rewired to function without Wi-Fi. Despite Gentry McCord being the CEO of Genetic Motors, he can't even afford a new car. From what Dad told me about capitalism in the old America, Gentry wouldn't even drive himself to work in that old thing. Someone else would drop him off and pick him up in a long black card called a limo. Seems like the most useless phallic bullshit. 
I saw photos from one of the books Dad stole when it, when his friends ransacked a library in 69. Gentry is waiting on Bruce Tiller. I heard Bruce talking to him on the phone about a prototype for another product Genetic wants to test out. A man who wants more money and owns a car factory is an impatient ass swallower. If I had Genetic, I'd sit in my office with a sandwich my boyfriend Care made me and wait this economy slump out. Sure, people aren't eager to accumulate the debt necessary for a four-figure car loan, but give it a decade and inflate the prices when GM introduces newer models, and you might have six figures a year. Tiller pulls up without headlights on and steps out with a TAC-14 shotgun over his shoulder as he surveys the darkness surrounding the old KFC. Gentry comes out with his hands up, and Tiller reaches into his car to pop the trunk. Pulling out a black box, Tiller motions for Gentry to grab their new toy while he keeps the gun ready. I'd love to jump down and scare Bruce to make him shoot me. I want to see the look on his face when he can't kill me. Once they're inside, I climb off the roof and manage not to grip my teeth too hard when my ankles scream as my feet hit the gravel lot. As the door is almost closed shut, I stick my finger in between the frame. Tiller and Gentry sit down in a booth while I crawl inside and get behind the wall separating the dining area from the bathrooms. A helmet? Gentry asks. How can you see with this on? It's a mask, Tiller says. You ever read about virtual reality? Well, we can't sell a VR product without the internet, Bruce. Is that what it does? It doesn't need any setup. Everything's built into a chip. So, if I put this on, what happens? All you have to do is whisper to activate it. The chip sends signals to go through your eyes and into your brain, so it's sort of like having a television on your head. You don't have to worry about buying a 70-inch TV because everything looks huge. You made a weird-looking TV. It's not just for that. It mimics different sensations and chemical reactions. Imagine if you could feel the high of heroin and watch anything you ever wanted. Listen to any album ever made. You fit all that data in the chip. Well, see, your brain makes it all up. Our own minds can create better images and feelings than anything else. Is this going to kill me if I try it on? Gentry asks. No, Gentry. Put it on and start telling it what you want to happen. This could be a trick to kill Gentry and take his shit, but he has barely anything to steal. I peek over to look at this white helmet that covers Gentry's face, and it's a basic contraption. Tiller doesn't pull up the gun to shoot, so that rules out the death theory. Instead, Gentry starts mumbling inside the thing, but I don't hear any beeps or bloops. It's silent, and I can't tell if the shit works. I stand up and step so the tile doesn't make a sound beneath my slippers. Tiller's gun is on the table in front of him, and he's watching Gentry as he begins to moan in the helmet. I guess that thing does at least one thing, right? Reaching my arm around Tiller's chin, I pull back to break his neck and lay him down in the booth while his face still twitches. 
The sound of his bones breaking gives me a tingle. I move the gun in the seat behind him. Tapping on the helmet, I expect to startle Gentry, but he stays jacked into whatever is going on. There's a latch on the side that I snap open. He blinks and looks over at me like I'm a nurse waking him up for a sponge bath. If a strange lady showed up to harsh my mellow, I'd strangle her. Mr. McCord? I hold the helmet. Um, he looks around. Bruce? He's just asleep. What happened? Huh? In the helmet, what happened? She was so beautiful. When she kissed me, my veins felt fuzzy. Of course. A man gets groundbreaking technology and immediately wants to stick his dick in it. What are you doing in here, Gentry asked. Who are you? I followed you, Mr. McCord. I live in a one-bedroom apartment with a kitchenette the size of an ironing board. I'm fucking broke, dude. You may not have much, but you sure as shit have more than me. Oh, he perks up. So you want to rob me? He lost 50 IQ points using this thing, so it's got to be the most wonderful, dangerous tech since the internet. Grabbing the shotgun, I walk backwards a few steps and then kick my feet against the ground outside to make tracks and get the fuck away from the chicken hut of death. I remember one of the reviews for Demise of the Trinity said that there were people with superpowers in the book, and that's not entirely inaccurate, but if you haven't deduced it already, Holner is part of the Trinity, but Patrick, didn't the Trinity end in Demise of the Trinity? Yes, it did. So you will just have to find out as either you read the book or you listening to me read it what happens and how Holner comes to be. How can she part of the, be part of the Trinity? Well, Holner is interesting because she is pretty fucking tough. She was in the military. Everyone in New America is required to do a um, some service in the military. What's that called? I think everyone has to serve three years, but sort of like Korea in that sense. But yeah, and she meets her boyfriend, Kier, that is spelled K-Y-A-I-R. These are Ridiculous names that I made up to kind of make fun of typical science fiction and fantasy writers and the different names that they come up for their characters. And they are easy to pronounce, though. I mean, they're pronounced the way that they are spelled. Holner, H-O-L-N-E-R. So, Kier starts off as pretty unpresumptuous as a character. I mean, you wouldn't think that he was worth a damn because he kind of disappears in the first book, but he comes back in book two. In what capacity? I will not tell you just yet. But Holner is, if you have not guessed by now, sort of an antagonist in this book. So they say... One of the rules for writing is that if you're going to open a book, you have to open by introducing your protagonist. So Sarah is sort of a protagonist, but also not. He is a very important part of the book, though. Holner is also a very important part of book one. So what what, what do you make of Holner? 
how do you feel about her? I was trying to write a woman character who had brains but wasn't too masculine. It's it's tricky when you're a man and you're trying to write women because so many of us don't know how to write women and a few women out there might be saying, well, what's the difference between writing a woman and a man? Holner, I tried to approach as if I was writing a man, in a sense. So she's not totally unlike some of the archetypes that I've used in previous books, like Arthur Lindsay, for instance, you know. So you can keep that in mind when you read the book, I guess. But there are other women in this book that take the reins a bit one of them being Shauna Briscoe and I like Shauna she's an interesting character and she has a whole backstory that actually goes beyond this book but again we will get to her I hope that you enjoyed this episode I intend to read one or two chapters of this book going forward in the podcast. I don't know if I'm going to read the whole book or not, but I am going to spend a lot of time reading and dissecting this book because I intend for you, the audience, to read and enjoy it. And maybe even if you read the book, you will enjoy hearing me read it aloud as the author. Also, as sort of a semi-audio book. So, thank you for listening to Demise of the Podcast. With Patrick Attaway, happy reading.